Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the August 15, 2017 edition of Ask a Leader. The U.S. is lacking enough adults in the room. The adage, if you see something, say something, is not just for transit folks. It includes places like the White House, the U.S. Congress, parks, neighborhoods, campuses. The list goes on and on. You might be surprised by your own outcomes. Folks did some of this hard work at Sasser Park, downtown Santa Ana last Saturday evening. I'm learning this lesson along with you. I crossed paths with Richard Spencer at the Politicon last month. I was not prepared then. I was better prepared when I met with folks inside later. I venture to say seizing an opportunity. I was able to seed a few thoughts. We can all anticipate the moment happening, so let's prepare to say something when we see something. Ask a Leader is a platform, a very intentional platform. You're welcome to use it. See Shambaugh at KUCI.org is where you could go, and we'll set up your form. Oh, and one other place to hang, your member of Congress's social media or mainstream media where they're appearing. What is your member of Congress posting saying as current events unfold? What they say says a lot about their thinking and their willingness to infantilize their constituents. On to today's program, I'm speaking mainly with UCI graduate engineering students at the Advanced Power and Energy Program, Van Vifat and Blake Lane, who will take the fiction out of science fiction about grand transportation, slaying some myths and post us on what's brewing up about improved zero net and self-driving vehicles. Then Girls on the Run Orange County board member Amy Cook will join us with how her organization's helping elementary and middle school girls develop essential skills. They've got the longitudinal study to prove it. We'll be right back after a very short station break. Welcome back to the show, everyone. 20 years ago, the first autonomous on-road driving tests were conducted in Southern California on the uh, Interstate 5. Rushing us up to present day with net zero and autonomous vehicles are my first guests, Van Vifat <laughs> and Blake Lane, UCI graduate engineering students at the Events Power and Energy Program. Van hails from Minnesota and completed his undergraduate work at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. He's contributed to Sandra Singh Lowe's Lowdown on Science, so he's already signed on to radio propositions. Joining Van is his colleague, Blake Lane. Blake, a product of Southern California and a UCI graduate, is like Van, a mechanical engineering graduate student at UCI's Advanced Power and Engineering Program. He conducts research on the promising new alternative vehicle known as the plug-in fuel cell electric vehicle. These new vehicles combine features of the previous state-of-the-art alternative vehicles to meet the needs and desires, heavily on desires, of the everyday driver while increasing efficiency, decreasing emissions, and supporting independence from fossil fuels. With net zero vehicles and autonomous transit, it's cruise control, but not your papas or your mamas. <laughs> Turning last week's wheel over to me with the radio console today. They join me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Van Vifat and Blake Lane. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you, Claudia. So that was Van and Blake in that order. Well, all my transit guests get the same introductory question. How did you get to school today? <laughs> well, Claudia, uh, and this is Van. Uh, I rode my bike today, actually. You are a bike tourist, too, so <laughs> that's probably what you do as almost a default. Yeah, I'm, I'm breaking in a new saddle, so it oh, gives okay. me a good excuse to come in on the bike. Okay. And about Blake? Un unfortunately, I drove a vehicle here, a gasoline vehicle, um, but I, I would say I have to do my research because I have to figure out what these vehicles are doing so that I can improve them with my research. All right. Did, was there a, a passenger in there to bring your footprint down? There was not. You, brought, you didn't pop anybody in the car. Okay. No. Well, that's <laughs> we're, we're just capturing all that. All right. Well, briefly... How did you two arrive at this advanced power energy program? And you can give us a little bit of a, you know, inside campus, beyond in the community kind of a sketch of what APEP is up to. 
Sure. So APEP, uh, succinctly put, it practices the development and deployment of efficient, environmentally sensitive, and sustainable power generation and energy conversion technologies. Uh, we do tremendous projects on campus and uh, in the surrounding communities, and we have partnerships with universities abroad. For any more information, please visit the website that Claudia will be linking uh, on the website. That's right. As for my journey to APEP, as it is known uh, <laughs> as colloquially, I suppose. So it started when I had a research project as an undergraduate student at St. Thomas. And I realized um, through a conversation with a professor that grad school would be the right choice for me. And um, I simply looked for you know, schools in warmer climates. <laughs> it's not a coincidence that I went from Minnesota to Southern California. Yeah, I have to we, say. We've seen those kind of recruitment <laughs> gimmicks used. <laughs> yeah. Well, it worked. It totally worked for me. Um, and all the stars lined up, really. Uh, APEP has the projects that I really was interested in and, you know, that I could really jump into. So the stars totally aligned for APEP and me. And I, you know, very enthusiastically joined uh, several years ago. And I look forward to staying in the program for another couple years to finish off my doctorate degree in mechanical engineering. So where are you in the program right now? So I am going to be a fourth year graduate oh. student. Okay. Blake? Yeah, so as Claudia mentioned, um, I actually went to UCI as an undergrad, also as a mechanical engineer. And in my second thermodynamics class, uh, which was taught by Professor Brower, um, he oh, had he a... He is dynamite. He is, he is yes. such a rock star. I, yeah, just yeah. I've heard presentations of his. Yeah, super enthusiastic, really loves his work. And uh, that clearly translated into his classes as well. And so about in the middle of the class, he had a lecture on fuel cells and some combustion as well, and that really intrigued me. So I went up to him after and talked to him about research opportunities and ended up getting a spot as an undergraduate researcher and, and loved every minute of it and uh, decided to stay for graduate school. I loved it so much. Okay. Well, I had me a little joy ride with Van and Blake last week in preparation for today's interview. Thanks again for that, fellows. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it was such a phenomenal ride that the next time I slipped into my conventional internal combustion engine vehicle, it didn't feel right. Really? Oh, wow. Did not. No, I, <laughs> I, was, wonder, I was sort of curious, but it, was, I did, it, it fell awkward, even though, I mean, I didn't have the wheels in this uh, oh, sure. at the net zero. So as Van and Blake break down for us the different levels of autonomy, let's begin with them telling us about the yes. Scion model, how special yes. this, this special model landed in UCI's engineering's in your hands. And then we'll get a look under the hood. <laughs> we do lots of visuals on this radio show. So uh, these are prototype Scion IQ electric vehicles. Toyota only made 200 of these ever, and only 90 of those 200 landed on U.S. shores. So for research purposes, they landed in UCI's hands, about 30 of these vehicles. And they've been used in demonstration projects with the Irvine Smart Grid demonstration project. They've been used locally as a part of a zero emission vehicle network, uh, also known as ZevNet. Yes. Um, so these are really phenomenal little vehicles that Toyota provided our university for research purposes. The engineers from Toyota still come around and take measurements. Oh, they do? Yes, on the systems and everything. So as far as like how I have gotten access to these personally. First so you had to be a rental car agency age. You have to first yes. be 25. Yes, that is correct. So Blake yeah. is itching. You're a couple years away from that? Unfortunately, one year away. Only one? Well, that <laughs> yeah. is, oh, you'll still be in the program, and you can take that wheel out of his For hands. sure. Looking <laughs> yeah. forward to using a battery so, vehicle. Yeah. yeah. So essentially, um, so I volunteered to help maintain these vehicles and provide them car washes and that kind of thing. Um, and in exchange, I could use them for little here and there type things. But yeah, they're they're phenomenal little vehicles. Uh, it's it's pretty funny, like you know, just driving to the grocery store or whatnot. People give me the thumbs up sometimes. Sometimes people laugh because they're a little <laughs> bit small. But, but they they were small, <laughs> and folks, there were four mainly <laughs> yes. tall adults tooling around last Wednesday, and I I felt the the uh, the net zero envy from from <laughs> and the cuteness envy of that. But it, now there was an overheating with the four of us in there, and that comes oh, at yeah. a cost. In, uh, if there has to be some either a lowering of the windows or the, the AC <laughs> drain on the battery. It can get a little hot, yeah, inside the cabin. 
And as you said, yeah, so the battery of uh, the range of these prototype vehicles is quite a bit shorter than the type of vehicle that is on the market. So again, you know, prototype vehicles versus uh, commercial vehicles. But, you know, just for zipping down to the uh, beach and then coming back, uh, being a little bit conscious of your air conditioning, uh, air conditioning usage because that will affect the range a little bit. A um, little bit. Yes. Really? Well, <laughs> yes. Okay. But um, but yeah, they're they're great little great little vehicles. I we're we're happy to like have shared that experience with you because the zero emission vehicle experience is you know something to be to be said about. You know, it's it's uh, completely silent, which is unusual. You know, from the standard internal combustion engine vehicle. So a lot of people prefer prefer that because it's a little bit more luxurious. And then, you know, as we as we talk more about zero emission vehicles, uh, we could also perhaps take the opportunity to talk about hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicles as well, which really sort of bridge the gap between the uh, luxury and like experience of the battery electric vehicle with the convenience and range of a gasoline uh, vehicle. So just fun stuff to look forward to in the conversation. Yeah, so as Van and Claudia mentioned, these Scion IQs are mainly meant for small city-type trips with a range of about 40 miles. Obviously, if you drive very efficiently and no AC and the window's up, uh, you can stretch that a bit further. Um, But something that fuel cell electric vehicles really give you is, as Van mentioned, like more driving. It's closer to what you would expect with a gasoline vehicle. And I guess the trade-off there is that they're not quite as efficient as battery electric vehicles still much better than your conventional gasoline vehicle, um, but not quite on par with battery electric vehicles. And so something that I look into is what happens if you combine the best of both worlds, where you have the plug-in capability of the battery electric vehicle and the fuel cell long range with the fuel cell electric vehicle, so that for most of your shorter trips, you're very efficient, you're very clean. And for the longer trips, you still have clean and efficient hydrogen. Wow. So... Can that all be accommodated under the, the hood space? Yeah, so there are actually multiple manufacturer vehicle manufacturers that are making prototype vehicles of these. Is that the auto race, the arms race, uh, to that <laughs> in that kind of hybrid? The different, different manufacturers are really looking into different types of vehicles, especially as these batteries are becoming cheaper and cheaper. So some are sort of tending more towards batteries at these moments. But the long range seems to be fuel cells for several automakers. So not to broadside you two, but, you know, when I'm looking and preparing for this interview and I check in the business sections, that all the automakers are faced with a fabulous conundrum of what kind of energy source, because these are all different, different features, different markets. So they really have, they, they can't just rely on putting a, a different fender on the car like mm-hmm. in, the, uh, in the 50s and 60s. This, right. is, this is troubling for their R&D and their marketing people. Good for that. Yeah, this really speaks to the different qualities that both batteries and fuel cells give you. Um, they're both, although they're both very clean and very efficient, they both have different characteristics, so they can be used in different situations. So the service stations for those hydro cells, those are limited, though. Correct. And so there's more in maybe more the research and development kind of intensive areas, so they're kind of agglomerated, maybe. In, in certain areas, so in some places you'd have to go several hundred miles to ever get to one, if, or a thousand miles. So right now in the United States, uh, they're all located in California for all. public use. Okay, Correct. take about um, But there are um, endeavors to bring these to different areas, such as the Northeast and, and also Washington and Oregon, and it's spreading throughout. Um, but currently they are mainly situated in the Los Angeles, Orange County area, as well as the Bay Area. Okay. And you can drive from south to north in California. Yeah. All right. My guests, if you just joined us, are Van Vibat and Blake Lane, UCI PhD students at the School of Engineering and the Advanced Power and Energy Program. And we're talking all levels of autonomy, all actually all f- kinds of fuel that are servicing the, the leading edge cars. So with the right, I got a taste of the advantages and disadvantages. You've, you've talked a little bit about range anxiety already. Sure. You also taught me, though, with the batter, the, the electric cars, this takes the fluid out of the car's operation. And so there's yeah. no transmission fluid. There's no fluid lubricating the engine here. So we've got 
another factor here, a cleaner car, not just in terms of emissions, but what it's dripping. Oh, yeah. 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 The overall experience, uh, user experience of the vehicle, you know, is quite clean. I mean, there's zero tailpipe emissions. There isn't a tailpipe for battery electric vehicles. But if Claudia yourself or, you know, perhaps some of the viewers or listeners, sorry, have had the chance to visit. They're a visualizing this. Sure. That's yes. Fine. Yes. If they've had the chance to walk into a service stall or service garage yes. for battery electric vehicles like a Tesla, you know, service garage, uh, they'll notice that I believe they all have white floors. <laughs> so it just it shows like and they're, they're going to be clean. So mm-hmm. it's it's really a totally different experience. Because, you know, when you design a, be- a vehicle to be run on, you know, electricity, electric power, you can get rid of so many of these, uh, you know, m- mechanical energy conversion devices and uh, your standard transmission isn't really required anymore. So uh, at least for most, the vast majority of these battery electric vehicle designs. So, um, yeah, there's tons of opportunities and we're seeing some great products. So, um, yeah, like Tesla's, the sales are are very, very strong and. Chevrolet, as you're speaking to, like these other major automaking companies, they have the Chevy Bolt, which is their battery electric vehicle. And they also have subliminal the, marketing right, Bolt. <laughs> right, versus the Chevrolet Volt. Oh, got it. Which is the um, plug in hybrid vehicle, which is very similar, actually, in, in terms of design to the, you know, the plug in fuel cell vehicle that Blake has been doing quite a bit of research on. So the Bolt and the Volt replace the Colt. that's one way to think about it i suppose yeah well why don't you also you're talking about the the cleaner side is you can break down some more of the savings too in terms of well the the savings let's move into with what we have in the way of time is uh, with the autonomous cars and we were going to try to bust as many myths as we could here and the autonomous cars bring in a major savings but before we uh, while you're processing a little bit about that sure uh, i just want to know with the mix of these technologies on the road how is the especially the autonomous cars they're going to have to reconcile what i mean there's going to be different torques like with with blake's work on that the audi that torque is is still it's picking up and so how can an autonomous vehicle deal with an increasing amount of torque in a mixed technology Mm. or i'm not sure Mm. what's the the trade term for that Mm. so it's it's a challenge for a totally autonomous car to interact with all of those technologies on the road sure i mean in on one hand it is you know there's many challenges with autonomous vehicle technology there's incredible you know, incredible breakthroughs that have been occurring, though, as well. And rather than seeing it as a bunch of challenges, I would uh, yes. I would encourage the listeners to also think of it as many, many opportunities. So autonomous vehicles provide the opportunity to have far uh, less costly mass transportation, you know, because, you know, these vehicles are going to be driving themselves. They can pay for themselves very quickly, as one could imagine. That's an, yeah, that's Shared. an interesting Shared vehicles, um, not just for passenger transport, but for package delivery. I mean, one could imagine that with just one autonomous vehicle, consider it maybe a minivan, you know, that could be shuttling people around all during the day, but then taking many packages around during the night. So there's tremendous opportunities, not only for how we use these vehicles, but for how energy intensive these vehicles are as well. Because not just on the vehicle itself, I mean, we could expect these robotic-like vehicles be driving much more cautiously than the that's what you dispel for me that they can maintain the speeds that we're accustomed to now oh sure 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 so certainly and you know one could imagine that why is it that the highways if you if you just take a snapshot from a bird's eye perspective of a highway why is it that there's so much empty space on a highway it's because you know human driving you know we're used to safe distances to allow a buffer for our reaction times with robots, the reaction times can be in fractions of a second. So one could imagine if, grief. if this is a fully robotic, you know, like driven roadway, then these distances can be much, much closer together, which is this means that, hey, maybe after all, we don't have to keep expanding highways. Maybe this means that I mean, this is not only that, but it's a huge you know, symbol of the increased safety that we can expect from these vehicles. In addition, it, it could go on and on and on, but, you know, just to kind of round it off with another efficiency undertone or environmental undertone, 
when you drive closer together, that would reduce the wind resistance, the wind drag oh, at the vehicle. Yeah. Oh. So you're saving gas at the same time by driving closer together because these vehicles can safely, competently I drive closer together. I never thought of that. And you and I as bike riders know the importance of that. Drafting. Absolutely. Oh, <laughs> automotive, autonomous vehicle drafting. Oh, <laughs> that, oh, my mind's blown now for sure. <laughs> well, and another savings, which I am personally really delighted in, is about if this autonomous vehicle is picking us up, that means we don't have to have all of this. And, and then they drop us off. We don't need to, A, look for a parking place that doesn't right. exist. And the parking facilities can be turned into something much more yes. useful. Yes, yes. So there's a statistic out there. It's, it's far more than 50. I, th I believe it's over 60% of the land area of Los Angeles is devoted to the car. That is roads, parking spaces, parking structures. Exactly, Claudia, exactly. So, so that, that's an urban planning kind of concept that yeah. uh, impact that it could help sort of consolidate the development pattern. Yes. Because we're wasting so much space. And when I, after the ride with you guys and I sure. are, am preparing here and I drive by these oceans of parking places that are used at certain times only. Right, right. So that's phenomenal right. yeah think yeah and it's 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 amazing to imagine you know what what is possible with competent safe self-driving technology just in terms of the land use um, when we can simply share vehicles you know maybe these are owned by a, a community or maybe a company or you know something of that sort but there are certainly many many opportunities and when people imagine the future of transportation i would really encourage them to at least consider imagining it as a place that has far more green spaces, something that, you know, it's just a, it's a future that has many opportunities for more efficiency and more, yes. Blake. Yeah, and I think that all these many facets really speak to the fact that these autonomous vehicles are really a, a truly a, a paradigm shift in technology. And it's not just a different vehicle type, but the, the outcomes of these vehicles will stretch into so many different territories. So you don't have to just be a mechanical engineer to be interested in these things. And as we were preparing, you were telling me about, remind me that, you know, with the smartphone, that was a technology that nobody was, had even a, a, an inkling about, and it's become a readily accepted and subsumed kind of a, a product in everybody's life that, that there is that cognitive leap that could be made into autonomous vehicles. So right. I wanted to bring in we didn't quite get to go into the UCI microgrid so I don't know if we just turn people over to the website for that because I, I think we want to go through some of these myths but so folks to check it out the microgrid is it's a the hot and cold running energy supply system in the that's the particularly in one garage there at the corner of the campus or is there more than one there are several hookup places there are actually um, all the major parking structures on UCI have very all large solar installations. Okay. Yeah. And so, and you were talking about how Toyota engineers are coming in and they're taking measurements with the models that are knocking around UCI's campus. But then there's also a great amount of monitoring going on with your plugging in to get the energy, and you can oh, see right. that. Yes. Mm -hmm. it's, it's it's a delightful little device. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think you, you two need to, to get APEP to do tours. Uh, really solid tours, maybe charge or just or make a, a development <laughs> office auction sort of special that you know sure. bring people around. I think that's a really a very compelling cruise. So let's go down some of these myths about we talked a little bit about the ownership of autonomous vehicles, how that's going to change. So it's not the same. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, the user experience is that what you're referring to, or well, uh, vehicle ownership. Oh, right, vehicle right, right. Yeah. So vehicle ownership. Car. So um, a very like a very uh, common train of thought with this is that the uh, listener can imagine that you know if you pull out your phone and you open up the Uber app and imagine that and it a, costs a shared a gig a, a shared driving service right I'm, I'm right, not going right. to plug any particular oh sure one. sure so yeah so open up your yeah shared it's driving service a, app it's not a generic word <laughs> right. like Kleenex and Xerox yet sure okay <laughs> sure okay so. But you can open up this app and imagine that the vehicle costs substantially less than, you know, you're used to. And the vehicle that comes to you has no driver in it. And additionally, if you're traveling alone, you know, what's to stop that vehicle from being actually really small? 
because three quarters of the American commuters today drive alone. Oh, do I ever watch those massive SUVs with the, I'm not going to describe the driver, but everybody <laughs> knows what they, we'd see them at, you know, when we pull up. Yeah. And I <laughs> actually, I stare at the Escalade SUVs and I say, I didn't know those things are even being bought anymore. <laughs> but so anyway, so none of that, that stops. Well, that yeah. gets paired all the way down. So this gets, yeah. So this gets into the very fascinating energy and environmental impacts of autonomous vehicles. You know, it's it's a new land of opportunity as far as research is concerned, because not only are the vehicles themselves being driven more cautiously, smoother, you know, you could imagine that if you're riding in a robotic vehicle, it's not going to be slamming on the accelerator or brakes and swerving. It's going to be a very smooth experience. That's going to translate to efficiency gains for the vehicle itself. But not only that, the vehicle that people are going to be driving in, if they are commuting alone still, is going to be a smaller vehicle just for, you know, cost sake. So not only is this vehicle being driven more efficiently, but the vehicles being used more frequently are going to be smaller, more efficient vehicles just by default. So these are compounding like efficiency gains um, in terms of like the overall energy usage for, for the transportation sector. Now, they're not to say that everything is just going to be a total you know, positive. There is another very uh, strong conventional take on this that the historically speaking, the more cheap and convenient transportation has become throughout history, the more people travel, like the farther people go. So there is a concern that, okay, now it's so cheap. <laughs> so we're going to have a gridlock of autonomous vehicles. Well, maybe not a gridlock. Ideally, there would still not be a gridlock um, if everything can be optimized. Potentially, I, I suppose if. there Big could if. be. If, yes. Um, but it might be the case that you know, if there's a really wonderful plot of land, nice cabin, maybe an hour away. And the commute, right now, it's just not feasible to, to spend that much time in front of the wheel. If your vehicle can drive you to work and you can shoot off emails on the way, you can read, you can take a nap if you didn't sleep <laughs> that good the night before or whatever, that becomes a more appealing option. So, you know, this unlocks, you know, the potential where, okay, like, it's more efficient you know, potentially, but it's also potentially more miles traveled. So potentially more energy used. And there could be a spatial consequence to that then. Sure. We're taking parking lots out, or re repurposing parking lots, but we're spreading the commute. Sure. Yes. Extending yes, it, that is. Yes. Sorry. Yes. But um, while we're kind of on this yes. uh, particular subject, it'd be nice to round off, you know, the opportunities for the particular powertrains that one would consider. So if you were going to own your own vehicle, that happens to be autonomous and you know that it's going to be a long commute and you want it to be a zero emission vehicle experience, it'd probably make the most sense for a hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicle versus if this was to be a shared service, then there may be very large opportunities for even the small vehicle that we rode in right. you know, with a 40 mile range. Even that could be a shared device that could be used all day long and all night long potentially too right right so um it just has to be able to plug in when it's not in use right right shoring it up right but the user experience won't be affected by the inconveniences of so battery electric vehicles so yes. if, if it's a shared vehicle who's so everybody okay. knows to plug it in where they're leaving the car so this would be one could imagine this would be a centralized system okay so um when you order up your rides <laughs> you know a taxi sure. right now you, there's no doubt in your mind that you're going to be able to make it. You're going to make it. So it'll be the same experience with autonomous vehicles is what most people are thinking. That, you know, it, even if it's a battery electric vehicle with very short range, say it's like a 40-mile range vehicle like the prototype that we rode in. Right. You know, it'll make sure that your trip is assigned to be smaller than that distance. Or, you know, if, <laughs> if it can't be prevented, who's to say that another autonomous vehicle will be waiting for you halfway um, that can allow you to finish your ride? So perhaps the layover of the future on the ground <laughs> with vehicles. Who knows? Hey, Blake? Yeah, and two points on that. First, Van, you mentioned that the Scion IQ that we drove in had a 40-mile range. And I think it's just interesting to note that in California, at least for passenger trips, over 85% are 40 miles or less. So these you know, smaller battery electric vehicles could make sense for people like going to work, going to the market, and other sh short trips. And also the beauty of these autonomous vehicles is that they can fit any vehicle type. So right now they're mainly being used on gasoline vehicles, but there's nothing stopping the autonomous features to be deployed on battery electric vehicles, fuel cell electric vehicles, or even the plug-in fuel cells. 
Well, I just want to get to the psychological part about that anxiety ranges. You said 85% are under 40 miles, but but in terms of our liberated view of getting around is, well, we don't know if we're going to add one more trip, one more errand on right. our, sure. our trip. So it's sort of like we, we, that's a retrospective data point, but there may be, you know, looking ahead to your next ride, you don't really know. Like yesterday, I didn't know how many more trips I was going to add sure. to my roundabout town trip so yeah yeah so th th this is something to consider but Certainly. that's why the the hydras cell the yeah hydrogen, hydrogen fuel cell, cell that that's the the backup to, yes. to that okay yeah. yeah there's a lot of appeal for that for that reason yeah so i got a little chuckle at the one of the videos that you sent me with the the ted talk this canadian engineer was talking about yeah brad templeton <laughs> yes yes, yes. that that he said, and, and he's showing us this autonomous vehicle, and it was, there's no steering wheel to, to get that grip on that's draining you, and so that there's a psychological, <laughs> but that there's, a, I mean, people just sit in there, there's no pedals, there's, I mean, folks, yeah. you gotta really think, rethink the whole idea, as they say, that experience in the vehicle, but, but he pointed out that the rear view mirror is still a required <laughs> feature, even though the, the mirror isn't being used by the autonomous computer system yeah yeah that's just a funny uh kind of you know like uh example of the regulations that it hasn't have evolved yet right right correct yeah and uh it, it also goes to show how quickly this technology is evolving so it was just in 2004 that it was it's known as the darpa grand challenge it was a challenge it the was defense departments correct yes, sponsored research. where it was a 150 mile track in the california desert where essentially the teams were tasked with uh, providing a vehicle that you just simply push go at the starting line and the vehicle will uh, travel this path you know all through the desert 150 miles and reach the uh, finish line with no driver in it no outside control just totally on the vehicle and the first year there I mean these are the best you know roboticists in the country and wow um, you know the first year there were no successful finishers in fact the team that got the furthest what year farthest, was that how far back 2004 okay thanks the team that got the farthest only went seven miles into the 150 mile journey. So, oh wow! So that seemed like a pretty dismal time in robotics history, right? But the next year, there were, I believe, five teams who finished who finished that uh, journey successfully, and that was kind of that was really a turning point in in terms of like the autonomous vehicle history, because Claudia, you mentioned earlier that you know 20 years ago there was a smart vehicle research project on California roads. But a lot of the conventional wisdom back then was that if you want a smart vehicle, you must have a smart road. And that means, you know. Right, because they had all these little magnetic sure, sorts of panels in sure, the pavement or something like sure, that. But sure. that's not a, that is not a part of the equation at this point. You know, yeah. It, it's all in the vehicle. Sure, right, right. So that's, that's transformational because of the infrastructure costs and the delays that could be caused by upgrading infrastructure. So when you can have a smart car on a dumb road, so to speak, that means that these robotics technologies, like the sensors themselves or the algorithms that are driving them, can be advanced at the rate of, you know, that we're used to with cell phones improving so much every year. Uh, Moore's law, I believe, is the uh, right. law that applies. So, you know, it's it, it just goes to show how quickly this has gone from being science fiction to just in 13 years from now, you know, and now here we are. It's reality. So yeah. I'd like for you to pick up also the question about how the autonomous vehicles are challenged with changing road conditions. And, and uh, then we want to talk about some of the ethical aspects that people still wonder about what the, what the car decides is going to be the... Sure. So can you bust that myth that it, the, the autonomous vehicle can't handle that? So I think that's actually one of the, the main reasons why so much of this research is currently happening in California, where we have sun, you know, pretty much every day of the year and uh, not too much snow. And so those sensors are, it's definitely a challenge that I think Van can speak to a bit further. Yeah. So one can expect these vehicles to view and navigate our world much like the human driver would. So we collect information with our eyes and ears, and we uh, compare that to our experiences driving in the past. Um, and then we make decisions based on that. So, you know, really strong driving, self-driving vehicle technologies work in the same, very much, very much the same way. 
where they take in information on the roads through camera systems, radar, uh, LIDAR, which is, you know, you can think of uh, light version of radar, which is radio waves, and other technologies such as vehicle-to-vehicle communication and vehicle-to-infrastructure communication, where uh, the listener can imagine where uh, a traffic light is telling you ahead of time that it's going to be a red light so that you don't have to uh, slam on the brakes at the last second because maybe it was clear, maybe it wasn't. So with all this information, these robotic systems can automatically decide, you know, what the safest decision is. So if there is inclement weather, much like how a human driver would slow down because of lack of information, we could expect the robotic driver to slow down as well. Like picking up on the little slick because we aren't, we're not all using the net zero electric cars. Sure. There's still, there's petrochemical sort of a layer that is mixing oh, sure. with the first. And so those, those sensors could pick up on that but which is a wild equation to sure calibrate. sure sure and you know it it's it's important to stress too that you're right you know real world roads are certainly the uh that's certainly the place to test and um, a lot of these self-driving car technologies are in fact tested on real world roads um through just hundreds of thousands maybe today it's upon millions of miles of real world driving so it's it's really uh something to consider but uh, one can expect that the safe driving behavior uh, and the safe decisions that self-driving cars make are very much formulated the same way that we make them. So I don't know if you were thinking this, but with Charlottesville Saturday, I was thinking there no autonomous car is going to plow into <laughs> some crowd. Right. Done. Right. Problem solved there. Right. Well, you know, and uh, but there's, that means everything has to be autonomous. But because so, <laughs> it's it's being weaponized now in certain it's very isolated instances, but it's it's that's part of it. Sure. And to take a step back a little bit, I mean, you know, we won't delude ourselves. I mean, like there's no technology that's totally perfect. Right. Uh, accidents happen. But perhaps like the way to imagine this scenario is playing out, you know, uh, as we begin to experience this technology, self-driving technology more and more is it's going to be a similar experience, likely, to that of the airline industry. You know, do plane crashes happen? Yes, they still happen, unfortunately. But when you're in the airport, there's no doubt in your mind. You know, like, it, we, we have so many expectations of safety, and we rightfully can expect that. But the whole engineering and the, the, all the testing has and records and investigations have made for an incredibly safe domestic airline history in yes. the last i don't know is it two three years it's been right. there has been no wreck right 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 so um but so i mean that's the same thing with the time right. vehicles so it just gets get better yeah so just to show you know a bit of more of the motivation of you know why we'd like this technology i mean there's certainly many environmental uh energy <laughs> reasons why we would why we'd really really want this technology on the roads the main reason though at least from the engineering perspective where it's our engineering duty to uphold the safety and well-being of the public, you know, consider this, that the leading cause of death for Americans between 4 and 34 years old is the car accident. Yep. 95% of these fatal crashes are caused by human errors, and the most common human error is drunk driving. So these aren't, you know, just honest-to-goodness mistakes. These are pretty... Silly or more drunk know, driving than dumb. distracted driving with cell phones and everything. You know that and the statistics don't get any better in recent years. Right. No, I so think we, getting we, worse. Would, yeah. we would expect them, you know, generally speaking, we would want we'd or we'd at least like to expect <laughs> the roads to get safer as time goes on. You're right. With distracted driving, it's not getting much better. So annually, there's about 30,000 Americans that die every year in car accidents. So that translates to. About enough Americans every day to fill a medium-sized jet aircraft. So what we have right now, because of these stupid human mistakes, is essentially a plane crash every single day. Right. Would that not be front-page news right now and for the next, I don't know, weeks? But we're complacent to it to a large extent. I mean, as a society... I mean, I don't want to, I don't mean to like point any fingers necessarily, but you know, it's, it just shows that there's so much room for improvement and mirroring the airline industry. Now we find ourselves with this autonomous vehicle technology at something very reminiscent of Kitty Hawk where, you know, right when it was first starting, there were people who said that it wasn't even possible. 
And there are people right now who say that autonomous vehicle technology will never be possible. But there's absolutely <laughs> tons and tons of evidence to suggest the contrary. And, you know, it's just incredibly exciting the opportunities that we have to obviously primarily bolster the health and safety of the public, but also cause tremendous positive impacts for our energy usage as well. Well, with more material to cover, we can save that for maybe a little, like when APEP is going to have some uh, a March uh, extravaganza <laughs> next year, we can Correct. have you back on and fill in what we haven't today. But Wonderful. let's let both of you quickly wrap up the whole interview with the engineering researchers have to reconcile yourselves with regulations catching up with design. So that's our, the last hurrah here for today. Yeah, so Claudia, you mentioned that uh, that silly talk about how autonomous vehicles have to have the rearview mirrors just because of regulations. And I think that's that's pretty typical for a lot of these situations. You know, when, when Kitty Hawk happened, Van, as you mentioned, um, I'm sure there was a very similar situation with how are we going to deal with all these new flying vehicles. But it, it always seems to work itself out. So I, I'm not too concerned. We just need to keep our representatives abreast of all these technology advancements. Yeah, I agree with Blake's take on this, certainly. You know, there, there's always going to be some teething issues, so to speak. Right. Um, you know, there, uh, it's, it's, it's important to, as Blake said, keep the politicians abreast, um, definitely as, you know, as these updates happen, because this, uh, a lot of the vehicular technology has been evolving at a rate far faster than we've experienced in the past. So it's just more reason to get the science outreach um, as, uh, as quick as possible. Well, gentlemen, I'm so happy to have you bl blow my mind with what's possible out there. Thanks for coming down to the station to, to be with us today. Yeah, thank you, Claudia. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having us. So that was my, my two guests was Van Vifat and Blake Lane, graduate students at the School of Engineering and Advanced Power and Energy Program. We'll be right back after a very short station break with Amy Cook, board member of Girls on the Run, Orange County. See ya. Thank you for staying tuned. My next guest is Amy Cook. She's Girls on the Run, Orange County board member to talk about her organizations, helping elementary and middle school girls develop essential skills. They've got a longitudinal study to prove this. Amy Cook is the director of project management for Grupo Gallegos with her extensive experience in creative operations focused on large-scale department management, recruiting agency and supplier contracts, integrated production and operational strategy. She builds new teams in broadcast traffic. That's This is some traffic here. I hope we're generating business affairs, content production, and digital production. Amy began her tenure at Girls on the Run, Orange County, as a volunteer coach. I imagine that was so gratifying. She coached a team of girls at Martin Elementary School in Santa Ana School District. In January, she joined the Board of Directors and was voted in 2017-2018 Treasury. Amy Cook earned her Bachelor's of Arts in Psychology and Sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Amy Cook joins me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader. Thank you. So, chartered and headquartered in North Carolina, tell us uh, that the, about the Orange County chapter of Girls on the Run, that your area is being centered in Santa Ana and Irvine. Yes, we're a newer organization to the area. We've been in existence for three years. Uh, the program has grown from two schools uh, and 30 girls to eight schools, and over 100 girls are served each season. We have two seasons a year. The program's offered in Santa Ana, Irvine, Placentia, Yorba Linda school districts currently with 20 to 25 volunteer coaches each season. Okay. So can you, I'm curious, uh, distinguish yourself from, um, we're familiar with some of the other organization that's in the area that support girls. Tell, how do you distinguish Girls on the Run from the, the others, what you have to offer in the essential skills you're providing them? 
part of our program is research-based uh, curriculum, and then we offer uh, training for our coaches. And then our charter is to ser be uh, serving all girls, um, specifically third through eighth grade girls. And the focus is on developing the whole girl through self-esteem and, and confidence development in addition to the physical activity. So when we think of Santa Ana as a, a community and the demographics and we think of Irvine, we forget that Irvine has its own pockets of very much the targeted population. So you want to speak to that a little bit so we can dispel the idea that everybody's got everything hot and cold running, privilege running, coming out of their tap. Our organization is there to serve uh, all girls, regardless of where they live in Orange County. Okay. We're in specific school systems now and looking to expand, so we're not looking at it from that lens. Okay. So, God Rock, I guess, is the, uh, the acronym <laughs> that you use. Girls on the Run, Orange County. It's involved in Santa Ana and <clears throat> in Irvine, and you recently released some findings from a longitudinal study. Tell us about those findings, whether there was anything that was maybe surprising, counterintuitive. The research results showed that 97% um, of the girls um, in the program reported taking life skills that they learned in the program and they were applying them in their life out outside of the girls on the run class. Um, so in school, at home, with their friends. So why don't you, can you sort of open up a uh, program, a manual that is a, a, a curriculum for, for the girls and I, I'm thinking while while we're talking about this we had the so-called breaking news yesterday that there was an essential skill Taylor Swift had in saying no and so I'm just wondering if that's part of what you're equipping the young ladies is knowing what's a, a boundary that's uh, exceeded and the other kinds of ways of standing their ground um, and it's not just standing their ground it's also keeping an eye on on other people around you and, and standing up for them as well um, and taking a minute to breathe and think before you act and not just um, be impulsive and hopefully step up to help somebody else in that type of a situation. So you're in terms of dealing with impulsivity and it's, it's such a hard wiring especially in these, these demographics so can you give us a little idea of some of how that is a sort of a uh, role-playing and or are there exercises they take away, and how, how do they operationalize that? E each class, um, we have a textbook that we're going through, um, verbal exercises, and then we'll talk through the thought process and how you, you get to an answer. So it would be just taking a minute to assess your surroundings um, and make a, a good decision, a positive decision, and, and be a good person about it. Well, I in the way of sort of promoting, because I know you all have an ongoing... Uh, search for additional board members. I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing to do on community radio is for those that are involved in these nonprofits to talk about what it's like to witness where your beneficiaries step up and realize these kinds of skills, uh, acquire them, and, and what it's like to observe that kind of real solid progress. So I uh, did sp spend one season at Martin Elementary School. So you, you see the, the girls coming into the class at the beginning of the season a little bit nervous. Some people might not be comfortable talking in a group. And we make a, a point to make sure everybody gets a chance to talk and interact. And we'll encourage people that aren't as vocal to speak up. So by the end of the season, it's a lot more cohesive and everybody is comfortable raising their hand and speaking out. And it's, it's neat to see the evolution of the girls going through the program. I imagine. And so the oldest beneficiaries are now they're in the ninth grade in high school eighth grade or they're eighth grade mm -hmm. when no the beneficiaries oh, right. the yes, ones that yes. have finished mm -hmm. I, I put in air quotes <laughs> that and I say that with all due reverence that the oldest ones who've gone through this program they're now high school aged young ladies and so are some of them sort of paying it back pay, not paying it they're probably paying it forward and how they're their models of these essential skills, but are they saying they want to get back and return the favor and they, they're, they're involved in bringing up some of the, the earlier grades in the program? 
our coaches and such that are involved in the program are adults. Okay. Um, the the study, the longitudinal study, does show that girls, even 90 days after the program, are still using the life skills that yes. they learned in the program and applying them. Um, but as far as how they get involved, other than recruiting and suggesting it to their siblings or their peers, I think that would be more of a word of mouth um, okay. way of paying it forward. Okay. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest in this portion of Ask a Leader is Amy Cook, and she's a board member of Girls on the Run Orange County, out with a, a, a new longitudinal study that's assessing how essential these skills are being incorporated into these young ladies' lives. So do you want to post listeners on some details here when the... We've got already the seasons open for registration. You want to tell us some of those kinds of vital uh, logistical things? One way to find us would be girlsontherunoc.org or info at girlsontherunoc.org. I believe the season, the next season starts October 2nd. We get shoes from ASIC, so if girls don't have um, shoes to run in, we are able to help provide those so everybody is Seriously, equipped. Seriously, literally. Oh, okay. <laughs> They're running. I mean, it's a kinesthetic and a social and uh, all these things. Go e ahead. Each season wraps up with a 5K, um, and the coaches, I ran Martin uh, Elementary School girls at the end of our season. Um, we also have buddy systems where they could have a sibling or a friend run with them, and if the girls didn't, I grabbed a bid and ran with them. <laughs> Gamma Phi Beta is one of our big volunteer supporters, that, so they help us put on our 5Ks, um, help with fundraising and some other assistance that we need outside of the board. We also have a Chipotle fundraiser on October 26th with 50% yes. of the proceeds from the Orange County restaurant being donated to Girls on the Run Orange County. Uh, and again, you can find us at girlsontherunoc.org. Okay, so those proceeds are going to help in and you're are there any kinds of talents that you want prospective board members to bring to the board I think that the board is very diverse we have people that might be in the education system some lawyers some in the medical field I'm in marketing yes uh, so I think it's just having an investment in time in your community um, and an interest in, in helping the next generation well I really applaud what you're doing and I'm so glad to have you on the show today Thank you. Thank you for coming. My guest was Amy Cook, board member. She's a treasurer on Girls on the Run Orange County. We'll post all of this important information as we put the podcast summary up here at askaleader.com. Well, I want to close the show with the following. It's the fifth year anniversary of Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Lots of online venues. The nearest physical venue to this station is today if you're listening to this live at 11 a.m. at Congressman Ed Royce's office 101 West Imperial Highway Brea that was my wrap next week we'll devote the whole hour to Professor Richard Madsen Chinese scholar at UC San Diego to talk about human rights prospects in China around and after the recent death of Liu Xiaobo thank you for listening everyone talk with you next week meanwhile I'm keeping my what were we thinking machine turn on and up Nowhere to run to